Bible? I put my Bible somewhere where anyone sees it. Okay. Well, I got one up here, so it's okay. Pulpit Bible. Good to go. Um, Advent starts this week. Advent means the coming. The, the, the first Advent was the looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And we are now waiting for the second Advent, the coming of the Lord Jesus. Hey, you found it. Where was it? Back there. All right. Thanks, brother. Um, and so we're in the in the middle between two advents of the of the same Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this this season, four weeks of Advent, um, I had read Ruth when I was learning Hebrew, and I may have known this before then. Probably someone told me at some point. Um, but in reading Ruth in Hebrew, uh, the word, the name Bethlehem, is in Hebrew, house of bread. But that's actually what the, mean, the name Bethlehem means in Hebrew, house of bread. And in Ruth, which we will look at, I believe, next week, we will see why that matters. Um, but it just struck me as I was thinking about what to do this year for Christmas that um, this is really one of the, the central themes of Scripture, is the feeding of God's people. And the fact that Jesus comes from Bethlehem, the house of bread, and then calls himself the bread of life. And it harkens back to the manna that the people ate in the desert. I think will be a fitting theme this year. And so as we go through this series the next few weeks. We will end with John 6, where Jesus says he is the bread of life. But I want you to just keep it in the back of your head these next several weeks um, as we go through these different Old Testament passages, looking forward to the one who is to come and this bread that would be uh, for all of us. And so have that in the back of your mind as we go. Um, This morning we will be in Deuteronomy 8, which is... The, the, basically the final words, the final sermon of Moses to God's people at the end of the Exodus, the end of the 40 years, and he reminds them about this manna that has been falling and coming for 40 years now. So this is Deuteronomy 8. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the first few verses. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart and whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger. And then he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell in these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, land of brooks, of fountains, 
of springs flowing out into the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we are very grateful this morning to have your word before us. We pray that it would be nourishment to us and that we would not live by bread alone this morning. In Christ's good name, amen. The story of the Exodus is one of just error and sin after error and sin. Um, We tend to think of... Uh, the triumphant exit of the people of Israel across the Red Sea. But even though that's true, that the people crossed the sea and then Miriam, her song of Moses comes and they sing about the triumph of God, this is what happens just a few days later. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days Three days. Red Sea, parted the Red Sea, fled across dry land. The Red Sea closes. The Egyptians are put to death. Three days go by. In the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people... Asked for water? No, the people did not ask for water. The people wanted water? No, the people didn't want water. The people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Therefore the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where the twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they camped there by the water. Three days. Three days. Days and they grumbled. We read this story and we read many others, and we just think there's no way that I would be numbered against the grumblers. There's no way that I am that way. Um, but it's just true in life that we are this way. The next chapter, Exodus chapter 16, so that was Exodus 15. Exodus 16. They've now been in the wilderness about 45 days. Okay, So three days, they grumbled. Now they've been there about a month and a half. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, For you have brought us out to the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. 
It's 45 days later. After God has provided them sweet water when they grumbled about the first time. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Now think about this for just a moment. One of the most difficult parts, in my opinion, of parenting is this problem of grumbling. If you've had children, or you have known children, um, they have this tendency to do this thing that we term whining most of the time, right? A pitch of voice. It's like high-pitched and awful. And so we generally make it a rule in our house that if you whine, you do not get what you whine for. That's generally the rule in our house. Like if you come and you go, I'd like some juice. Well, that's great. You need to ask nicely, and you're still not going to get it because you started out by whining. Because we don't want to teach our children that they get what they want by whining, right? Now, I say it's a general rule because here we have the explicit opposite happening. The people grumbled, God sweetened the water. The people grumbled, he gave them bread. The people whined, the people whined. And so there are times when even though it is our general rule that we give our children what they whine about. Now, God is a perfect father. I am not. And so I'm sure that I have erred in which one I have done, giving or not giving, withholding or not withholding. But here we just have this strange, strange thing about fatherhood where you're always weighing, here is a problem in my child. What is the best way? To tease out the root of the problem so that it may be put to death. How do I help my child put to death whatever the problem is so that they can live a good life? Right? Because if you go through life grumbling and moaning and whining, you will not have a good life. You will not have a fun life. You won't have a productive life. You won't have fun kids. You'll have grumbly kids and then they'll make you grumble twice as much because you are already a grumbler. Right? We don't want this. And so here we have this thing that happens. So he gives them sweet water at Merah. And then he says, if you diligently listen, if you just do what I say, I'll never visit the iniquities, the sicknesses, the diseases of the Egyptians on you. You'll never get sick. You'll never have crop failure. You'll never have hail. You'll never have flies. You'll never have locusts. You'll never have boils. Your firstborn won't die. That's the promise. That is a huge promise. Massive. And then 45 days later, 40 days later, grumbling again. And so God says this, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, so that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So, five days a week, you gather one day's worth. On the sixth day, which would be Friday for them, they gather twice as much so that they'll have food on the Sabbath and won't have to go work and gather. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we 
that you grumble against us. So Moses said, your problem is not with us. They, the people were saying, Moses, you did this. But Moses is saying, no, 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 no. You're not grumbling against me. You're grumbling against God. Let's just be honest about who you're grumbling against. And sometimes, if I'm being a very good father, I will remind my children that when they grumble against me and my wife, that they're in fact disobeying God who told them to honor and submit to and obey their parents. So Moses does this. He's a good dad. No, 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 no. You were not grumbling against me. You were grumbling against God. So let's just get this straight. But God has given you food anyway. And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumbled against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? What is that? Which is, just so you know, the word manna means, What is that? What is this? For they did not know what it was. And so Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. So here it is. Listen up, Israelites. Here's your test. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as you can eat. You shall take an omer, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. That's just a measure that they used back then, an omer. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they had measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it till the morning. There's your rule. Just gather what you're going to eat today. Don't leave anything over. Don't try to hoard. God is your provider. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. And then the second test. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord God has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So he says, okay, today is the day before the Sabbath. Get twice as much, and you will keep it overnight, and it won't breed worms. And so they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat of it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people 
went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the Sabbath day. Two tests with one miracle. Only gather what you need for one day. Some of them didn't do that. It bred worms and stank. Second test. Gather two days' worth the day before the Sabbath because I'm not giving you food on the Sabbath. I'm providing you food so that you can rest. And some of them got up in the morning of the Sabbath and went looking in the fields. They ignored the commands of God. So now we have basically the entire outline of what happens the rest of the 40 years. God gives them a test, a commandment, and they fail to do it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And up and including the point where they send the 12 spies into the land of Canaan and 10 come back and give a bad report. And the whole people of Israel say, we're not going to go because we're scared of the people of the land. And God says, therefore, none of you over the age of 20 will enter into Canaan. You will all perish in the wilderness. So every man who is 20 and up, who left Egypt and saw the miracles and crossed the Red Sea, every single one of them, save two Joshua and Caleb died in the wilderness in 40 years. And that promise, that unbelievable promise from Exodus uh, 15, if you will just obey me, I will not visit any of the calamities, any of the diseases that I did to the Egyptians on you. They didn't, and so they all died. Okay, so this is the backdrop. This is the whole deal. This is John 6, which will end in a few weeks. This is, the, this is the story of what Jesus is talking about when he calls himself the bread of life. It's not pleasant. It's full of all kinds of sin and grumbling and disobedience. And finally, a failure that we see in Deuteronomy 8. The people of Israel were fed for 40 years by miraculous intervention from above and failed to give thanks to him properly. And so now we have the equally difficult problem that we are fed not by manna from heaven, but we are fed by normal everyday means. Right? So farmers go out each day, and they plant, they water, they check, they weed, they spray pesticide, they spray herbicide. They do all these things so that wheats and corn and uh, barley and all these sorts of crops will grow. And either we will eat them or they will be fed to other animals so that we can eat the animals. Every day this happens. And every day in the supermarket we have the products that finally come to us after they've been manufactured. Right, So these huge grain carts that come, they harvest all this corn and beans in our area take them down, get it processed. Some of it comes to us by way of food. gets put into our market. We have dairies that produce milk, which gets turned into milk and cheese and butter, and we eat it each day. And we often, often do the same thing that the Israelites did. That even though we are fed each day, we do not thank God 
We don't realize that every single bit of this is just as miraculous as manna on the ground. This is uh, a part of a sermon from Charles Spurgeon. And I've talked about this idea before. Uh, Greg and I have talked about this quite a bit. What's holding up this building? Is the beams and the effects of gravity against those beams pressing out, holding these things up? Yes, but what is actually holding up this building? It's God. God. And so what actually happens when you eat? Is it the caloric content of bread that nourishes you? Is it the nutrients, vitamin D and A and C, that nourishes you? Or is it God? And this gets more difficult the further we get down into what, what things are. We, we tend to just forget that all of this is just the natural outworking of how God made the world. And that if God wants to not make the world that way anymore, it will not be that way. So this is, this was preached in the mid-1800s, Charles Spurgeon. But I reply, it is most marvelous for God to be able to do a miraculous thing without a miracle. So he's talking about the manna in the wilderness and saying that we eat miraculously every day too. But it's without a miracle. We don't go out and gather dew from the ground. Do you comprehend me? I think it's. I would not have thought that'd be something he'd say in 1850s. But he's like, "Do you comprehend me? Are you are you picking up what I'm laying down?" I think that the working of a miracle is not so wonderful as that when the end is gained by ordinary laws and methods, gained without the cessation of any power in nature, simply by providence overruling the powers just as they are. He says the most miraculous thing is just the everyday occurrence of normal stuff. To be miraculous without miracles is the miracle of miracles. I have seen many miracles which were not miracles, but yet all the more miraculous. The poor have lacked bread. Stones were not turned into bread for them. But they had their bread as much as by miracle as if rocks had crumbled into food. We have seen the poor merchant reduced to distress, and he said, Now I cannot see any hope for me. God must rend his heavens and put his hand through the very windows to deliver me. So, coming to the end of the month, you need rent money. There is no money. God is going to have to rend the heavens to save me. No heavens were rent, but the deliverance came. We could probably, many of us, talk about very different... um, aspects of this miraculous sort of thing that isn't a particular instance of miracle but is miraculous because it just comes about in the normal every day um my wife and i have these sorts of stories where several years ago we gave away a sum of money and no one but she and i knew it And like two weeks later, we get an unsigned letter in the mail. Well, actually, it wasn't even a letter. It was an unsigned envelope in the mail with a money order, which are untraceable, right? They don't, you don't know who sent them for almost the exact same amount we had just given away. There was no rent heavens that did that. Someone actually had to go to a Walmart or something and purchase a money order and send it to us. Someone who knew our address. And didn't have to ask for our address because nobody had asked for our address. So we had no idea who did this. And that's just normal every day. 
And then there's this secondary part. This is also from that same sermon that Charles Spurgeon was talking about. Naturalists speak of laws of nature. There is no power in a law. Write it as you like. It has no power. The laws of nature are simply the Lord operating in a certain manner, producing certain effects by certain means. This is why we call it a law. It is God in action. And the reason why bread sustains the body is because God puts his potency into it. And it receives nutritive virtues and the body is sustained. The reason why we are nourished by bread is not because bread contains vitamins, minerals, and calories. It's because God feeds us. Now the Lord by the manna said to the children of Israel, Man is not fed by bread alone. He is fed by God's power that comes from him into the bread. And when the bread is lacking, he can infuse that power into the very dews of the night. And they distill and shall become manna full of nutritive energy to sustain your frame. And you shall know that the power to nourish is not in the second cause. So it's not in the nutrients contained in the manna. But in the first cause. Not in the corn, not in the bread, but in the Lord God himself. This was the lesson which they were required to learn. So we just came through Thanksgiving. We just had a time where the entirety of our nation set aside a time of Thanksgiving. And we thank God for many things during that week, right? All kinds of things. Things we have forgotten to thank God for through the year. Things we have to thank God for through the year. And things that are current happenings, right? So we're the, basically the harvest is over, more or less, by the end of November, most places. And so you have this big influx of all these crops being harvested. And so we give God thanks for it. But what Charles Spurgeon points out, and what this passage in Exodus points out, is that man does not live by the bread. God could imbue anything with the power to sustain life, but he's chosen to give it to bread and water, that we need these things to survive. But what happens is we become naturalists. We become people who just as easily as a pagan, just say that we are thankful for the corn which the farmer planted, which the, you know, da-da-da, and we just trace it naturally back. And we don't realize that God is the one who ordained that corn would contain the stuff that would give us life, physical life. That if he had decided to do it differently, then that would be the natural law, and not the other way around. And we know this in part because of the way the days of creation happen. I've talked about this before, in brief, in passing, when we went through the days of creation. But the light was created on the first day. And so God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. The sun and the moon were not there. They were not there. And yet, we would never say that light exists separately from a source, a sun, somewhere. And then, as if to put more sting on it, this happens on the third day. The waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And let the earth sprout vegetation. Vegetation. 
plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in their seed, which according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. Now we know how plants produce food for themselves. They have this little thing in them called chlorophyll, which makes them green. They absorb uh, carbon dioxide somehow. I don't know all the processes. It's been a long time since I biology. All these processes happen, produces food. They expel oxygen. They are fed by the sun. In fact, we have whole operations of indoor farming that are happening because we have figured out the exact spectrum of light that plants need to produce food. We've pinpointed it. We say, if we get a light to produce this color, it will produce food. And yet, God made light and plants before the sun. Because the sun didn't come until the fourth day. Why did he do that? Why did God not produce the world according to his own laws, which would become in effect afterwards. If the sun were snuffed out, we would die. Plants would die. And yet, there is a very real thing of that not being true. And we see it in at least a few places in Scripture that are the unbelievable miracles of the Old Testament. Two different times, in two different battles, Things like the sun standing still or the sun turning back in the sky happen. Now, we all know exactly how the sun moves in the sky. And it's because the earth rotates on its axis. It's set at like 23 degrees off angle towards the sun, rotates around in 365 and a quarter days, and it spins around on its axis every 24 hours all the way around the sun. And that's how the sun rises and sets. And yet God said two different times, That's not how the sun rises and sets. I make the sun rise and set. And if I want to stop the sun from rising or setting, I will. And it won't completely destroy the world, right? If you talk to an astrophysicist like Neil deGrasse Tyson, who has answered this question, he's like, basically, the whole whole system would die. If If the earth stopped spinning, we'd fly off the face of the planet and everything would implode. Like, that's what would happen. And yet, that didn't happen didn't happen. All this to say that when we think about the physical needs that we have, the physical needs that we have, sleep, food, water, we stop just shy of where God wants us to be in our faith. We thank the producer, the farmer. We thank those sorts of folks. And we don't get far enough back in our thinking that God is the one God is the one who nourishes our bodies. And that if he wants us to survive on almost nothing, we will survive on almost nothing. And further than that, the the deeper lesson, that there is actually something non-physical that is necessary for true life. That the fact that there are all these people in this world that do not know God or his word, they are not truly alive. We know this because we're told everyone outside of Christ is dead in their trespasses and sins. You must be born again. These sorts of phrases. But we don't think of people who are eating and drinking as being dead. Zombies, if you will. We think of them as just non-Christians. 
we think of them as non-spiritual. We think of them as um, those without knowledge of the truth. But the fact is that they're dead. They are dead. And man cannot live, cannot live, truly alive, without the Word of God. And the Word of God finally is Jesus, who is the bread of heaven. And we must eat of him to taste life. When the people of Israel, lost in the Exodus, began to understand this, this stuff, that man does not live by bread alone, they began to hope for something. Towards the end of Deuteronomy, Moses says, there's one coming after me, a prophet who will be greater than me. And they began to get hopeful again for something that was beyond themselves. That those who actually entered the promised land, many of them, who had seen all, their, all these other people die in the wilderness, but they themselves got to go into the promised land. If they went in by faith, they knew that every single bit of their lives was owing to God. Physical and spiritual. And our job now, all these many thousands of years later, is the same. Our job is to recognize that every single bit of our lives, from the physical seats we are sitting on now, to the food we will eat when we get home, is owing to God and God alone. But it's not enough and will never fully satisfy us that we are in need of something far greater than any physical bread or caloric intake. We are in need of spiritual food. And if we neglect it, we will die. So... Springing forward, and this will be the last passage, and then we'll take communion quickly. You have, in the book of Hebrews, oh, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What is that talking about? The promise of hope. The word. The word. The word. That's what it's talking about. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us continue, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son. But encouraging mother and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgments and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That what happens on Sunday mornings is not a small thing. It's not a small thing. What happens on Sunday mornings is the consumption of life. And without it, you will die. You will die. That the neglecting of meeting together is not a neglection of a consumable periphery, something non-necessary. But it's a neglect of literally the stuff of life. That it's just the same as if you stopped eating and drinking. You would die. Neglecting to come together to hear the word of the Lord is a death sentence. And I want us to know that, that um, 
when Moses was with the Israelites in the, in the desert, and he's telling them, man does not live by bread alone. He was giving them an encouragement to come and to know the word. But as much as he was saying the, the physical Bible, which really didn't quite exist at that point, right? They didn't have paper books. They didn't even have scrolls really at that point. That the word of God came mostly at the, by the mouthpiece of God, Moses and Aaron. That they would hear the preaching of the word. And they'd be fed by it. And this is extraordinarily humbling for me and for any man who has any semblance of what happens on a Sunday morning. That here I am, a man full of sins, full of fears, full of doubts, full of sins against you, sins against my wife, sins against my kids, sins against my family this week, getting mad last night on the way home, two hours from home. I could name you sins that happened in the last 24 hours. I'm trying to feed you this impossible thing, this invisible food. And it's humiliating because I know I can't do it. That something else has to happen here than me just preparing a sermon and writing some stuff down and praying for you. That something supernatural has to happen. Something that I do not possess, and you do not possess. But if that thing happens, the Spirit of God, you will be fed and nourished. And if that thing doesn't happen, we will starve to death. And so the greatest thing that happens on this Sunday morning is that God in his providence has made a way for you to eat from me. And from whoever your pastor is. And that is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. No matter how talented a man is who speaks. No matter how gifted he is at oratory. The Spirit of God still is the one who feeds us on a Sunday morning. And it's the same Spirit who will feed us lunch in an hour. That if the Spirit doesn't apply that nourishment to your body... It will be just as if you had a tapeworm inside you and you will starve to death. And no amount of doctoring will solve it. If God decides to deprive your body of nourishment, you will die. And you will die spiritually if God deprives you of the spiritual food of his son. And so pray eagerly that God does not do that. He is our healer. He is our provider. And he has given us the gift of his son. Let me pray quickly and then we will take communion together.